Amen. Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study uh, from the Living Church. I'm doing it in my dining room uh, today. We um, have a few members who are out sick today, so we decided to do it here um, at the house, and we're continuing our Bible study through the book of Judges. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, we, at our church, we do what we call uh, expository Bible studies just as on Sunday mornings. I do expository preaching and expository means in essence we go through uh, books of the Bible uh, chapter by chapter sometimes verse by verse and we do that so that as we study the book we can see the the full context of uh, God's story. You know God wrote the Bible uh, he inspired a men, imperfect men, uh, by his Holy Spirit to write the Bible. And the Bible is one big story. It is God's story of uh, redemption. It is the story of uh, creation, and then the fall, and then uh, redemption, and then consummation when Christ comes back. And so when you do expository preaching and expository study, you are... Uh, finding everything in its context, and it makes it better when you study the Bible to do that than just cherry-picking uh, different verses. Uh, even difficult verses are better to uh, interpret and are better to comprehend when you uh, look at them in their full context. Uh, so we here at our church have been doing that uh, since we started back in 2010, uh, being committed to uh, expository preaching on Sundays and expository Bible study on Wednesday nights. So we're in the seventh chapter of the book of Judges. We're continuing uh, the narrative story of Gideon being called by God. The last chapter we studied last week, God had called Gideon and uh, Gideon had a crisis of, of faith and trust. So he asked God to give him a sign uh, with the fleece. And so now we pick up in the seventh chapter where Israel is going to war against a much mightier army, uh, the Midianites. And a lot of us know this story about the, the valiant 300, uh, but there's a greater story behind that that we're going to look at and see how all this points to, to God, learn about the character and nature of God, and also how these scriptures point ultimately to uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us go before him in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the blessing of being able to study your word. Uh, we thank you for those who have joined us on this live. I pray, Father, that you fill me with your spirit to, to teach this text well as we exposit the text tonight, looking at this seventh chapter. Lord, may we learn more about you and your character and your nature. May we learn how this points to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, just refresh us and enrich us by your word. Help us to grow in our faith as we study your word, Lord. And I pray that you send the spirit to illuminate, to make clear your truths uh, that we will see in this text tonight. Lord, just bless our time together. In Christ's name, amen. So as we always do, we go section by section through, um, especially through the Old Testament passages, we go uh, section by section. So we're going to begin the seventh chapter. I think the first section is uh, verses one through three. And the overall context overview is Gideon has an army that's going to go before the Midianites. Uh, but God deems that army too big. <laughs> and we're going to see how God uh, dwindles them down and why God is doing this. So beginning at the first verse of Judges, the seventh chapter. It says, Then Jerubbaal, rather, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Moray in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. 
lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So we do our math here. I had a good math teacher in high school. Um, if 22,000 returned or left and 10,000 remained, that means that there were 32,000 at first ready to go to war against the Midianites. Excuse me here. So there were 32,000. And all Gideon asked was, whoever's afraid, leave. <laughs> and and 22,000 left. Now, first of all, we want to note that the first thing that God said was that the people who are with you are too many for me, for God. And this was a great test of Gideon's faith because uh, there were over 135,000 Midianites, as we're going to see. But his army, 32,000 men, were already outmatched. It was already too many. Just imagine an army of 32,000 going up against an army four times that size. They were already outnumbered. And so I'm sure that Gideon... This is a great test of faith for him, but yet God, God himself thought that this army was too big. He commanded Gideon to invite all who were afraid to go home. Simply put, if you're not ready, go home. And that many did. And we can assume that Gideon was probably surprised by the number that did return. But why did God do this? There's a reason why, and this is something important that we must uh, note. This is a important biblical principle for Christians, for believers, for the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is that God alone deserves the glory. God alone deserves the glory for everything that he does. Anytime we feel that we can do things in our own strength, what we're doing in that moment is telling God that he's not needed. You know, Lord, I don't need you right now. I got this. As, as some people say in our modern vernacular, you know, people say, I got this. I got this taken care of. Lord, I don't, I don't need you for this task. I don't need you for this moment. But God was telling Gideon and he's telling us. He said, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. In our modern self-obsessed culture, this, this is what we see. People are all about self. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that men will be lovers, lovers of themselves, boasters. How many self-made people do you see on social media? They're, they're all about, you know, being a self-made millionaire. I'm self-made. I, I did this myself. I accomplished this myself. That is a slap in the face to the providence of God, to the sovereignty of God who allowed you to accomplish those things. There's no such thing as a self-made person because you're just dust. You literally dust. You're, you can literally take your last breath right now. I can literally take my last breath right now. I'm not self-made. I, I, I have no power like that. But in our modern culture, we are self-obsessed people. But God was telling Israel, why am I willing this army down? So that Israel won't claim glory for itself against me. Saying my own hand has saved me. If we really believe the principle 
uh, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's from uh, Zechariah 4 and 6. If we truly believe that principle, then our smallness doesn't matter. Our smallness doesn't matter if we truly believe that biblical principle. If we really believe the principle from uh, Psalm 20 and 7, which says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Then smallness doesn't matter. With God, smallness doesn't matter. We have to think with God, there are more who are for us than those who are against us. God is not concerned with numbers. We are as man because we think that might makes right. You hear the saying there's strength in numbers. In some sense, there is. But there can also be strength in numbers for the wrong reason. There could be strength in people who are doing something wrong, and it could be a majority of them. So strength in numbers is not always a good biblical, it was not a biblical principle, number one. Because strength in numbers is not always good. What the majority says and what the majority feels is not always right. So for Christians, we must not be concerned with the sheer numbers. Rather, our greater concern should be, is God on our side or not? Is God for us or not? So with Israel... And Gideon, God was saying, it's, it's too many. Even though they were still undersized anyway, God still said that 32,000 was too many. So God wanted the odds to be so bad that victory would be clearly his alone. That's basically uh, what it boiled down to. And that is the way we should want it to be in our lives. It should get to the point where we say, nobody but God could have done this. When you're doing it in your own strength and own power, you, you can't say it was God because you'll be lying because you know that you in your mind and your heart, you did it in your own strength. So Gideon next had to separate the men. So look at verses four through eight. It says, but the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. And I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, this, the same shall go with you. And of whom I say to you, the one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart for himself or by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink and the numb of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took provision and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So the people had to be separated. The 10,000 that were left was still too many for God to use. 
So God, again, God had already reduced the army from 32,000 to 10,000. So let's keep this math. Now he reduced it from 10,000 to 300. He did this because 10,000 was still too many for his purposes. Still too many. In our American culture, we rarely think that bigness can be a hindrance uh, to the work of God. We think bigness is actually better for God as if God needs a lot of people to accomplish his work. We, we may not say that, but we think that in our minds and our hearts with our actions. It is, do you know it is harder to truly, just think about this. It is harder to truly rely on God when we have many wonderful resources at hand, when we have a great number of people to do things. It is truly harder. Why? Because in our sinful state as fallen man, we believe, as I said earlier, that there's strength in numbers. That's what we believe. Like I said, we don't say it, but in our actions, we, 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 we do that. We, in our hearts, our sinful hearts, believe that there's strength in numbers. And when we get those numbers, we don't need God. Though it, can, though, though it can certainly be done, it's hard to be big and to rely only on the Lord. It's hard to do that. When we are big, it is possible to do a lot, of, to do a lot with the human resources that we have. And then what do we do in the end? Give credit to God. <laughs> We have all these human resources at our disposal and we accomplish something and then we turn around and give credit to God. So what we have to understand, this principle that God uses the weak things, the despised things, the wisdom of God confounding the wise. God uses the small things. Israel, when they came back, you know, I'm reading through the Bible and I read Ezra the third chapter this morning. Um, when, you know, the Israelites came back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the temple was rebuilt. And the scripture says that the the younger uh, Hebrews rejoiced, but the older ones, the ones who saw the glory of Solomon's temple, they wept. They wept because this new, newly rebuilt temple wasn't as glorious and as, uh, didn't have as much splendor as Solomon's temple did. Because it was much smaller and it wasn't as, as mighty and as ornate as Solomon's temple was. But what they failed to see was that they still had a place to worship Yahweh. They were more concerned because this, this new temple that they rebuilt was, was smaller and not as glorious as Solomon's temple. but they still had a place to worship God. And so when we think about something being too small, in God's eyes, there's no such thing as something being too small. So looking at the test here, these are some strange tests that God had, had given him. God told him to bring these men to the water and he would test them there. We don't know why God uses to separate soldiers. The scripture doesn't say, and as, as my principle always is, wherever the Bible is silent, I'm silent. Uh, we don't know why God chose this as a test, but I tell you what, this test was very effective <laughs> in whittling down these men. 
these men had to get down and lap like a dog. You know, we have a dog here, a, a swagger, and I, you know, sometimes I watch him when he he drinks his water after he eats his food, and he just laps that water up with such rhythm. That's the way God made them. God made uh, dogs and cats, I guess, to lap water like that. That their tongues are are kind of bent at the at the end to bring in the water. That's the way he made their tongues to do that. But just imagine a human trying to do that and how humiliating that is. But God did this to whittle the numbers down. He eliminated the fearful and those who thought of this as an inconvenience. So God is sure getting that victory was certain now with 300 people. He says, in verse uh, 11, I'm sorry, in verse 7, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. This was less than 1% of the original size of the th uh, 32,000. Less than 1% of the original. And the proportion was about 400, let's, let's keep this in context as we think about what's about to take place. The proportion of Midianite soldiers to the soldiers of Israel is about 400 to 1. God made it impossible <laughs> for Israel to boast. He made it to 400 to 1 ratio. No, in, in, in modern warfare, no country can win a war when they're outnumbered 400 to 1. No, no way. No way. But that's God. And that's what God wanted in this case. So he, get, he left Gideon with no other choice but to trust God. And this is another principle here that I have in my notes. Sometimes God has to humble the mighty or those who think they're mighty. Sometimes God has to break us down because us as his children, those who are believers are his children. As believers in chastening us and leading us to dependence on him, sometimes God has to strip everything away from us. To get us to the point where we have no one to trust but him. Well, all we say is, Lord, who do I have in heaven besides you? Sometimes he has to do that. Think about Jesus. In John, the sixth chapter, Jesus had many people following him. But he preached what we call the hard sayings. In John the sixth chapter. And when he said these hard sayings, let's turn to John 6 here. Remember, Jesus only had 12 disciples. His core group, and one of them was uh, a betrayer that was Judas Iscariot. But John the sixth chapter. The hard sayings that, that Jesus talked about was eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And of course, those who heard him thought that he was talking about cannibalism, but he wasn't. He said this in the synagogue. Now listen, this is back at verse 53 of John, the sixth chapter. Well, verse 53, look at context here. Uh, actually, let's go back to verse 48. Again, context is very important. So this is John 6, verse 48. This is in the middle of his discourse. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. So Jesus speaking of himself, that's one of his seven I am statements. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, 
he will live forever. And the bread that I give, I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. He was talking about the crucifixion on the cross. But the Jews, therefore, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because they weren't thinking spiritually. They were thinking with fleshly minds. They weren't thinking that Jesus wasn't talking about literally eating his flesh. He was saying that that manna that Israel ate in the wilderness for those 40 years was a picture of Christ. That manna pointed to Christ as their provision, as their bread of life. So after they asked this question, how can he give us his flesh to eat? This is what Jesus said. Most surely I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So Christ was talking about himself he was speaking figuratively but the jewish leaders thought that he was speaking literally so he was talking about his death on the cross that's what christ was talking about but look at verse 59 and 60 these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in capernaum therefore many of his disciples when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said, does this offend you? What then if you shall see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you. Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it had been granted to him by my father. From that time. Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. This is like the whittling down. That God did with Gideon. And those men. All these people were following Jesus until he, he started preaching these hard sayings. And what did they do? They didn't understand it, so they left. So many disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, this is verse 67. Do you also want to go away? Now, love what Peter said, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus' hard sayings whittled down his audience, separating the fake disciples from the true disciples. The true followers. God is not looking for a great crowd. These twelve disciples, excluding Judas, you know, they chose Matthias in the uh, in the book of Acts, the twelfth disciple. These twelve disciples turned the world upside down. As you read in the book of Acts. One man's sermon, Peter's, in the second chapter of Acts, added 3,000 souls to the church. The sermon of one man. It wasn't 100 men. It was one man who was under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was endued with power from on high. He spoke a great sermon in Acts, the second chapter, as it is recorded in and that day, 3,000 were added to the church. It doesn't take many. God doesn't need a lot of people. 
Jesus spoke those hard sayings and that army was whittled down. Those disciples left because they could not take that teaching. It's like this in churches now today. True biblical churches, first of all, people who really want to hear the truth, the true truth, they're going to come. But people who don't want to hear it, they're not going to come. Or when they do hear it, they're going to leave. When they're confronted with certain truths of scripture that contradict the falseness that they believe, instead of acquiescing to that truth, instead of saying, okay, I want to sin under this truth, they leave. This principle of the whittling down the army deals with all that. So God whittled this army down to 300 so that he alone will receive the glory. God has to humble us to do that. Letting us know it's not about us, it's about him. So now Gideon is getting ready to spy out the land. So looking at verse 9 here, it says, It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Malachites, all people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. So God wanted Gideon to find encouragement in his visit to, to the enemy's camp. Now, what this shows is that when God asks us to do hard things for him, like he's asking Gideon, he doesn't just fold his arms and just kind of, you know, sit back and and uh, expect us to do everything on our own, you know, leave us to our own devices. God didn't just sit back and do that. He is there to guide us. He is there to keep us. And he is there to encourage us along the way. God is always with his people. Remember, uh, Christian, he is a very present help in trouble. The promise he has for believers is he would never leave us nor forsake us. Hebrews 13, 5. So that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? That's Hebrews 13 and 6. God is always with us. So God was there with him to encourage. He was with Gideon to encourage him. He didn't leave him to his own devices. And so we also see God's mercy in here. God says afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go against the camp. This is the tender mercy of God. You know, I say it all the time, especially our, our church family knows it, how people who don't read the Bible and who hate the Bible, but don't even read it, or they do read it, they misinterpret it. Let's say, oh, the God of the Old Testament was, was, was not merciful, as if it's a different God than the, same, than the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. God does show mercy in the Old Testament. He dealt with the doubts and fears of Gideon. And he wanted to reassure Gideon. So guess what? He did it. He says, afterwards, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. That is great encouragement. That is great mercy that he showed toward Gideon. So we see next that God assured Gideon through the Midianites. We see the scripture says that they were so large. It says that camels were without number because remember, uh, the Amalekites and the Midianites were, they were nomadic peoples. They, they, they traveled. They had camels. They, they, they were nomads. But they were in the valley as numerous as locusts. That means they were everywhere. That's, that's a good metaphor. The camels were without number as the sand 
by the seashore multitude. So the people just covered the ground everywhere and they had camels everywhere. So Gideon had come and there was a man telling a dream to his companion. This is verse 13. I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. And to his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Hmm. So this was a vision that was received. And barley meal, just as a historical fact, a barley a loaf was only eaten by very poor people. And this is what this meant. Remember, the barley bread was only eaten by very poor people. So what this means is that the camp of the Midianites would be knocked over by basically a nobody. That's what this vision meant. That barley bread represented basically like a nobody coming into the camp of the Midianites and knocking uh, them down, defeating them. Because barley meal was uh, mostly like for dogs or cattle than men, but only poor people ate it. In man's eyes, it was a worthless thing, but in God's eyes, it was mighty. Know this, people. Things that seem worthless to man can be worthy to God. People that seem worthless to man are mighty to God and can be mighty for God and can be used mightily for God. Don't let your station in life think, or don't, don't let your station in life have you think that you're of no worth. If you're made in God's image, you're an image bearer of God. All, all of us are. We all have worth and value and dignity before God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us stand in need of a savior. All of us need to be redeemed uh, from sin and forgiven of our sins. God takes the lowly things of the world to confound the wise. He does that. He takes the lowly. He takes the base things, the, the low things to confound the wise. The wisdom of this world is foolish against a believer who is rooted and grounded in Christ and rooted and grounded in the truth of God. They can take on the smartest philosopher ever if they're rooted in God's truth. So this body, that's what it represents. It says, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. That's what the interpretation of it was, basically. A man of Israel, and to his hand, God has, has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Think, it says God has already delivered before the battle even happened. So God had allowed Gideon to see a great confirmation of his future work. And this wasn't a display of luck. And this wasn't coincidence. God used this situation to build the faith of Gideon. We see God's fingerprint all over this. God used this to build Gideon's faith. God is so gracious and loving in doing that for us. He used the situation to build Gideon's faith. And none of this was an accident. It was all providential. We talked about the providence of God in our church before. 
It is God superintending all the affairs of our life that nothing happens by chance, nothing happens by luck, nothing happens by happenstance. Everything in our life happens by the providence of God, the superintendence of God, God superintending all the affairs of our life. There's nothing that happens in our life that God is not part of. And we see this with Gideon. And these enemies were afraid of Gideon. They were afraid. And as Christians, we must take this to heart. Our enemies, the enemies of Christianity, the enemies of the true church, both human and spiritual, are at their core afraid of us. Why do you think they attack us so much? Why do you think they attack the church so much? Because they are afraid of the church. They are afraid of the power of the church. They are, they are afraid of the power of Christianity to save, to change lives, to turn this world around from the, the moral abyss that it's in. They are afraid of that. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, said, the, the, the great 19th century, uh, he's called the Prince of Preachers, says. He says, behold the host of doubters and heretics and revilers who at the present time have come up into the inheritance of Israel, hungry for their deserts of rationalism and atheism. They are eating up all the corn of the land. They cast a doubt upon the truths of our faith, but we need not fear them. For if we heard their secret counsels, we should perceive that they are afraid of us. Their loud blusterings and their constant sneers are the index of real fear. Those who preach the cross of our Lord Jesus are a terror of modern thinkers. In their heart of hearts, they dread the preaching of the old-fashioned gospel, and they hate what they dread. On their beds, they dream of the coming of some evangelist into their neighborhood. What the name of Richard was to these Syracians, uh, that is the name of Moody to those boastful intellects. So what Spurgeon is saying here is that deep down in their hearts, the doubters, the heretics, the pagans, deep down inside, they want to hear the gospel. Deep down inside, they know that they need their sins forgiven. Deep down inside, they know that they are lost. Like he said, in their secret councils, in the, and I say this all the time, in the middle of the night, we have nothing else to think about. Those who hate God, they worry. They have fears that we don't have. They don't have the assurances that we have. They don't have the promises of God that we have. They don't. I was one at one time. That's how I know. And if you know the uh, biblical anthropology, the, the, the doctrine of man, that sinners are not at ease. Because if sinners could be at ease, why did Christ go to the cross? It was it was totally unnecessary. Christ wouldn't have said uh, that he came to save, I mean, Paul wouldn't have said Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom he was foremost. We wouldn't have heard the scripture account in Matthew 1 and around verse 21, where the angel told Mary, you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. These God deniers, these God rejectors know that they need the gospel, but yet they're afraid of it. They hate it because they're afraid of it. They're afraid it's going to change their life. They're afraid that they'll have to repent of their lifestyle. So 
God was doing this with Gideon. These people were afraid of Israel. So God tells them again, arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So now the army is small enough to be used by God to win the battle. So we see this in verses 16 through 18. Verse 15 says, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped. Look at that. He worshiped God. He didn't brag. He didn't boast. He worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Think about that great confidence. These 300 men, he came to them with total God confidence, saying, Guys, we're going to defeat this army. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord of Gideon. Wow. So he divided these men into companies. And we don't know if God gave him this plan or, or Gideon or just did it himself. But this plan, they were supposed to look at Gideon and do likewise. And they did. But I like what he told the army back in verse 15. Arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Think about great encouragement as well as to these 300 soldiers. Going against his mighty army. When we go in the name of the Lord and we know the Lord is with us, guess what? We go with great confidence. We go with great confidence knowing that he is with us. There's more for us than there are against us. That is such a great way to go into any type of spiritual battle. As we go throughout each day as believers, we go in the name of the Lord. We go knowing that the Lord is with us. And that gives us great confidence as we go to work every day, as we go to school every day, as we live in our homes with our families. We know that the Lord goes before us, that the Lord is with us, that the Lord is going to fight our battles for us. We have great hope in that. We have great encouragement in that, that God is with us, that the Lord goes before us. The Lord knows how to encourage his people, doesn't he? Then verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch as they had posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army read and cried out and fled when the 300 blew the trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia and Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahala by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Nephtali, Asher, and all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Man. So the Midianite soldiers, they they awoke to an explosion of noise, light, and movement coming down from them in all directions. And they were what I would call discombobulated. They thought they were being attacked by an army even bigger than they were because they heard all this noise and all this clamor, but it was only coming from 300 people. So this was around 10 p.m. because it said the middle watch. When you think about watch, you think about night when you're reading uh, Old Testament narrative, biblical narrative. So this was around 10 o'clock at night. And you have to understand this. In this time period, 
a few thousand years ago. They didn't have street lights. First of all, they didn't have streets like we do, paved streets. They didn't have outdoor lighting like we do. Think about that. They had their torches, but they wouldn't light up the sky like a street light does. So 10 o'clock at night was very dark. They couldn't see where the army was. They heard the clamor of the of the noise. They heard the, the trumpets and, 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 and the pictures. They thought they were being attacked by an army much bigger than they were. And then they cried out. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Notice the sword of the Lord. The sword of the Lord. End of verse 20. And of Gideon. This wasn't a result of pride, that, that, that shout. It showed wisdom in this attack. Because they were already afraid of the sword of uh, Gideon, as we saw back in verse 14. The Midianites did not know who the Lord was, but they knew there was a man from the Lord named Gideon. They did know that. And so guess what? They were afraid. And so what did God do? He set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. <laughs> so the first phase of this battle wasn't even between Israel and the Midianites. It was between the Midianites and themselves. I mean, think about that. The Midianites went to fight against themselves. This is a good example of one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Romans 8 and 37, where it says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Christian. Paul is talking to Christians there. We are more than conquerors through God who loved us. We get the spoils of victory through Christ who won the battle for us. He won the battle for us and we get the spoils of victory. Man, God is good. So the enemy killed themselves. They killed themselves. So toward the end here, we see Verse 24, Gideon sent messages throughout all the mountains of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They kill Oreb at the rock of Orb, and Zeb they killed in the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Orb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So after the Midianites attacked themselves, Israel was there to go in and pounce on them, these 300. God started this work with a small number of soldiers. And then what Gideon did, he got more involved in work. He sent messages throughout Ephraim. And they came down to help and assist in this fight. Now, there wasn't a lack of faith on Gideon's part. It wasn't unbelief. Gideon wanted more to get involved in this work. So they had pursued Gideon. They killed two of uh, the princes. And God blessed the efforts of the people of Ephraim. And they brought the heads back. This happened a lot. When people were conquered and, and they were beheaded to send a message. So this is just the first part of the battle. We'll deal with chapter 8 next week. But I want to close with something. Is just thinking about this as Christians, those who are true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
God does not need large numbers. He doesn't need small numbers either. God doesn't need any of us. God is, remember, uh, God is in himself. God is self-contained. He doesn't rely on another. He doesn't need man. Man needs God. That's, you know, the I am who I am. God is the, the self-sufficient, eternal God who relies on no one or no thing outside of himself. So God does not need us. He's not begging and pleading us. God doesn't, God doesn't need, he has no needs. He's God. So in saying that, he doesn't need big numbers. He doesn't need an army to accomplish his purpose. He can do it with one person. He can do it with 12 men as he did in the New Testament. He can use a small church. My church is a small church. He can use small churches. He can use big churches too. If they're solid and biblical, he can use them too. But he can also use small, solid, and biblical churches to accomplish his work and his purpose. Doesn't have to be B. We can't always think that there has to be more people to do different things. No. God can use whoever he wants. It doesn't matter how small. It doesn't matter. God is so merciful and gracious to us that not only will, will he appoint us to do things, but he'll be with us as we do them. That is the great mercy of God. That is the great grace of God. That is the great love of God. He does not leave us to our own devices. And this ultimately points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know the scripture says that broad is the way and wide is the gate that leads to destruction? And many, there are many who will go down that broad way. Many will find it. But narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life and few will find it and few Jesus said few will find it few will find the true way so I'm saying all that to say as Christians just because it's a crowd doesn't mean that it's right or doesn't mean that it's good God can use the few. And in the culture in which we live, honestly, there's a great sifting taking place in a lot of different ways. The true followers of the Lord from the false followers is taking place. You think about all the issues that are going on in our culture. Sexual perversion. Baby uh, murder. Uh, government corruption, unfair taxation, all these things taking place. And, and Christians, we have to stand on the side of truth. And you know who's going to truly be on the side of truth? Few people. Few people. But just because it's few doesn't mean that God cannot work. Just because it's few doesn't mean God can't work. I'll leave you with that. Thank you for joining me. Lord willing, next week we'll be back in, in, in church doing this, but I pray that this Bible study was a blessing to you. Uh, we have church uh, Sunday mornings at 1030. If, if you're not a member of our church or if you're out of town, you can uh, join us on Facebook uh, at 1030 on Sunday mornings. We have our whole church service broadcast. We're going through the book of Colossians right now. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 on Sunday. And every Wednesday night, we meet on Facebook Live if you're not able to join us in person at 6 o'clock. 
and we'll be studying uh, Lord willing Judges the eighth chapter uh, next week looking at the uh, ephod and also the rest of the battle of uh, the um, defeating the Midianites so until we meet again and see each other may the grace of the Lord be with you all.